Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. The great power of Christ and his resurrection over death is what gives us hope, all of us. Thank you, choir. Well, it's good to be with all of you again. My wife and I, Linda, are very much appreciative of you having us here and the warm welcome we've received as times passed. Thank you again for welcoming us as one of your own and uh, the chance to fill your pulpit and encourage you as you anticipate what God is doing by way of a pastoral search. I'm excited. I'm praying for all of you. God will do and fulfill his will for you and bring the man for you that he's determined. Well, to be encouraged to have God's word preached over us, I'm going to ask you if you've got a copy of the scriptures to open to the book of Romans. God's word to us is spoken through the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And we're going to read just there the introductory portion of this epistle, the first seven verses, and see what the Holy Spirit would say to us. Romans, the first chapter, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word to us. Follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word to us. As we anticipate the preaching of God's word over us, let's pray together, if you would, with me. Not to us, not to us, but to your name, O God, glory and honor, dominion and power for your steadfast love and loving kindness. Oh, Father, I ask even now that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would soften the hearts of those who hear, that you would inspire beyond the words of the printed page, and that you would grant to us your word from your word, that we might know Jesus Christ is the Lord. <coughs> And that we might sense the power of your spirit working within us and among us to change us, to grant us victory for the living, and to give you your glory. This is our prayer for the sake of Christ, our King, who saves us. Amen. Gilbert West. Is that a name that you know? Gilbert West. It's a name that you should know. In fact, it's a name that every Christian should remember for the whole of their life. Gilbert West was a skeptic, at least he started as one, but he ended as a believer. He bent the knee. He said, Jesus is Lord. Let me tell you a little bit about this man. He was born in 1703, and some years later he became a student at Oxford University. And there were two things you could say of Gilbert West in that time. He was brilliant, and he hated the teachings of Christ. Of all that there was about Christ and his kingdom, what galled him most was the fact that Christians believed that Christ had somehow been resurrected from the dead. 
It seemed appalling to Gilbert West. He was a man of reason. He was a man of logic. He was a man of learning. And the idea that a man could be hellishly put to death on a Roman cross and three days later physically brought back to life, in his mind, was absurd. And so, Gilbert West sought to disprove the centerpiece of Christianity. Gilbert West made it his life's aim to disprove Jesus was raised from the dead. That's quite an ambitious task, isn't it? (laughs) And so he set out. He wasn't intimidated. He was a man of confidence, a man of reason, a man of logic, a man of learning, a man of letters. And he began. And he labored for months and months and months. And at the conclusion of his project, Gilbert West did not disprove the resurrection of Christ. Gilbert West affirmed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gilbert West had become a Christian. After long study, after all that he had put, after all the consideration of objections of men, Gilbert West brought his studies together and he wrote a book, Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you obtain that book, from an antique book dealer in the present day, if you look to the flyleaf, these are the words that appear. Blame not before thou hast examined the truth. I want to ask you a question. How is it that this sort of transition can happen in a man like Gilbert West, a brilliant scholar who is resistant to the claims of Christ? No, no antagonistic to the claims of Christ. How is it that a man like Gilbert West now later embraces Christ, draws the gospel close, bends the knee and says, he is my Lord. He is my Savior. How is that possible? Well, the answer is obvious. When he began, Gilbert West didn't understand the origin of the gospel. And when he finished, He did. Where is it that the gospel comes from? This idea. Is it fashioned in the mind of men? Gospel, it means good news. Euangelion in the Greek. There you had your Greek lesson for today. You've got it. Good news. The Lord Jesus comes, Savior to his people. He saves them from his sin. That's what the angel said to Mary. You will name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Where does this message of the gospel come from? And more importantly, what is it that gives it the power to change a life? (laughs) Not any life. A life like Gilbert West. Where is the power of the gospel to change the drunkard to live as a sober man? To transform the thief to live as an honest man? To transform that one who will not live faithful to covenant promise as one who lives faithful day in, day out, irrespective of the temptation. Where is it the power that comes for that? How is it that the origin of the gospel can bend the will of a man, of a woman? Well, quite simply, the origin of the gospel is God himself. 
The message of the gospel contains the power of the gospel. And the one who sends it attends to it by giving his own power. And so this story that we read time and again, contained within the pages from Genesis clear through to resurrection, is not an aimless story made up in the mind or the will of a man. It is the very words of God. And hence it carries with it the power of God. And hence it works on people and changes them. That's what makes the gospel different. That's what makes the gospel powerful. Would you agree that anything that God puts his hand to is productive, is effectual, it does something? God doesn't sit around all day thinking, I wonder what I'll do to kill time today. It's not that way. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And whatever he puts his hand to, things happen. He's a God of action. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So as we begin, I want us to just briefly set down on the introduction to Romans, which is a wonderful outpacking of the gospel for some 16 chapters. And just in these seven verses, ever so briefly, I want us to see the origin of the gospel as it's played out with five different themes. Here's the first. Verse 1, the gospel issues a call. Look at verse 1 again. Let me read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, there it is, mark it, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Whenever the gospel makes inroads, it issues a call to those who are willing to hear. It's forever calling. It's calling right now, during this sermon. Are you listening? Paul the Apostle knew that call. Paul the Apostle knew that power. He's a fascinating character study in the Bible. As you move through the pages of the Bible, different characters pop their heads up, and Paul is one of those. In fact, he doesn't begin as Paul, you remember the Apostle, does he? He begins as Saul of Tarsus. This great figure of a man, incredible, impressive. In fact, Paul himself, in retrospect, looking back, writes about himself. He writes it to the Philippians. Here's what he says about himself. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul writes, I have more. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's quite a pedigree. (laughs) He was a blue blood, as they say where I come from in the Northeast. He had all the right people in his background. He was a brilliant man, yet unfeeling for those with different persuasions. He was passionate for holiness, and yet, He was guilty of the sin against his own kinsmen. He was a man who professed a great love for the God of love, and yet he was a man who was pushed to violence, and he spilled blood if he needed to. (laughs) That's quite a man. He was a man who knew how to hate. That's Saul of Tarsus. Indeed, the book of Acts, you remember writing, I think about in the eighth chapter, of the first martyr, Stephen, that Good deacon. And it says, as they were raining down stones on his head, they took their jackets off and they laid them out of a young man named Saul. 
of Tarsus. <laughs> what a guy. But one fateful afternoon, all of that changed. Paul, in his vigor, in his hate, was making his way down the dusty road to Damascus. Armed with those legal documents, he'd get those Christians. And everything changed. What happened? The gospel issued a call. Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? And in his blindness to the bright light, who are you, Lord, that I may know who am I persecuting? I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Oh, he heard that call. And now what he writes in these opening verses are so different. Not Paul the arrogant, not Paul the educated, not Paul the together guy. You see the words he used. Paul a, do you see it? Servant. The Greek word is doulas, slave. Paul the apostle, apostolos, called one, sent one. Oh my. The call of the gospel changes everything for Paul. He hears it. He hears it. William Hendrickson says Paul could sense that inward urge of the gospel even before he surrendered to the call. He knew something was up. You might be feeling that right now. You may not be a believer. And you're sensing the Holy Spirit pulling you, drawing you, calling you. Let him have his way. Henderson says, Paul could sense that inward call even before he surrendered to it. And the apostle writes that very thing. By way of Galatians, he says, Paul says, he who had set me apart before I was born called me. Called me. The gospel issues a call. What is that call? Repent. Repent, Paul. Stop it. Turn. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Repent. Believe. That's the call of the gospel. Here's a quick second one for you. Will you notice now, secondly, that the gospel, in addition to issuing a call, it displays a heritage. There's a heritage. Look at verse 2. This gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You know, the gospel is not a new story in the New Testament. It's an old story from the beginning of time. The Bible is like a tapestry. Redemption is like a tapestry. And God is weaving this scarlet thread. And it's only when we turn perhaps to the backside that we see, oh, I see this beautifully blood-red color running from the pages of Genesis clear through to the end of Revelation. I see the Redeemer in Genesis 3. And he will crush the head of the serpent, even though he tries to attack. It's the gospel early on. It has a heritage for us. These vibrant colors in the old show up in the new. Oh, we see it in the life of Jesus. And we hear it on the lips of the apostles as you're reading through the book of Acts where the church is just beginning. You hear it in sermons. That's Paul in Acts 13. He's recounting as Jesus is the descendant of King David as fulfilled by the Old Testament prophets. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He quotes the second psalm. And he says, you are my son today. I have become your father. He talks about Habakkuk. That's one of those Old Testament prophets 
God speaking through that prophet said, I'm doing something in your day you would not have dreamed possible. Gospel has a heritage. It's not something new. It's not thought up in the mind of man. It's conceived in the mind and will of God from before the foundations of the earth. In fact, the Bible describes Jesus that way. He was crucified before the foundations of the earth. What? Before time? In the mind of God, it was done for his elect. You remember Philip. He was one of those early figures in the Bible. Remember him in Acts. You remember how he went down to Samaria, south of Jerusalem, and he was preaching, and revival broke out, and people were saved. And as he's making his way back, here comes the eunuch of Candace's court, riding in his camel this great terrain, and the spirit says, run up next to the chariot. He does, in obedience to what God is doing in that moment. He's sensitive, he's listening. And what does he hear? He hears the eunuch reading from the book of Isaiah. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice is denied him. Who can describe his generation, his heritage? For his life has taken from him. Do you know what you're reading? I don't know who the prophet's speaking of. And he climbs up into the chariot and he explains. And the eunuch comes to faith. Here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Indeed you will. (laughs) In the name of the Lord Jesus. And he's baptized. He becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus. The gospel has a heritage. He saw it from olden times clear through to his present day. Wonderful. Now look for me. The gospel has an authority. An authority. Look at verse 3 and 4 if you would. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you see those words in there? Power, Lord, those are terms of authority. Those are positions to which people submit. Those are figures before which people bend the knee. Yes, Lord, I will obey. I will do as you say. You are the king. The authority of the gospel is evidenced first in Christ's conception. It's a fascinating thing how Jesus is conceived, isn't it? He's born, the Bible says, of the seed of David. There's his heritage. But yet there's something new and unusual and an authority about that. He's a king, even at conception. The gospel declares that Christ comes in the lineage of King David, but he's no more mortal. He's no mere mortal. He's no man alone. He's the God-man. Both. As man, he is our representative, our federal head. He dies in our stead. And as our representative, our sins are on him. Oh, thank the Lord. But as God, he has authority over death. Death cannot hold him. He doesn't see corruption in the grave. He is exalted above death. We read it in the Apostles' Creed. He descends to hell, figuratively speaking. He defies death. He kills death. The gospel has an authority. Even in his conception, you see it. A woman, young Mary, perhaps 16 or so, never to be with a man, and yet she finds that she's bearing a child. And the baby she has within her womb isn't by the will of man, not by the will of blood, not, it's by the will of God. What a power. 
I choose you, Mary. You'll be my God-bearer, Theotokos. You'll bring my son. He will save his people from their sins. And our text just here goes on further. An authority not only by conception, but an authority by way of his rule. The spirit of holiness declares him, the Bible says, to be the son of God. Do you see the posture of authority in Jesus' life when he comes? And he moves among his disciples and among the people. Do you see the posture of authority just there in the gospel? Oh, you do. You do. What is Jesus like? Very first miracle, you remember? Wedding at Cana. (laughs) Oh, they're out of wine. There's no more wine. And he performs this wonderful, miraculous event, and he turns the water to wine. Oh, my goodness. Not just that we could have our tastes satisfied. He is that new wine, isn't he? And all through his life, we see authority exercised again and again and again. He opens the eyes of the blind. He strengthens the lame to walk. He unstops the ears of the deaf. He loosens the tongue of that one who is mute. And he proclaims God's praises. Amazing. And what does he do with that which resists him in the supernatural, the demonic itself? Drives it out with his finger of God. (laughs) The gospel has an authority. Incredible. No other religion on the face of this earth has the supreme authority that the gospel shows defiance of death. Amazing. Jesus proclaims he will die, proclaims his resurrection, and fulfills his promise. Now that's authority. Jesus Christ, Lord over death. That's the rally cry of the church. That's what we just heard our wonderful choir singing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. God may allow something into our lives, just as an aside here, that eats us up physically, literally. Christ lives. No cancer is taking us down. Even if it takes our lives, we're alive in Christ. We live forevermore. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. What an authority. It's the rally cry of the church. No matter what people do to us, take over our nation, defy our liberties, Put the sword to our throat. Then the words of just and martyr become our words. Oh, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. (laughs) The authority of the gospel. Fourth, will you notice as we're moving rapidly through this, the gospel has an obedience. It summons us to obedience. There's a call, there's a heritage, there's an authority, and yet there is an obedience linked to it as well. The Bible and Jesus and the gospel is never easy believism. It's never just facts in our head. It's never just an egghead phenomenon, you know. I know all this stuff, therefore I'm safe. The Bible warns us the demons believe. And they shudder. (laughs) There's not a demon who doesn't believe that Jesus is Lord. But they don't obey. They don't obey. They don't submit. They resist. Just maybe we can overthrow his kingdom. Just maybe. The Bible, the gospel, summons us to an obedience. Look at 5 and 6 as we're moving quickly through. The gospel through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the market obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all 
the nations. You know, when the gospel, that call, that heritage, that authority, settled into the soul of Saul of Tarsus, there was a transformation, and Saul became Paul. (laughs) But Saul did that through obedience. Could he have resisted? Yes. Now, can a man undo the will of God? No, of course not. St. Augustine is good on this part. Even that which is done against God's will is not done without God's will. (laughs) Those evil men and women who resist, I won't, I won't, God will allow them for a time. But nobody takes God's will from him. It's impossible. Psalm 103, you have established your throne in the heavens and your kingdom rules over all. But still, there is a willingness and obedience that must have happened in Paul's heart. He realized that God had chosen him to become an apostle. He could have run, but instead he submits. And Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. You know, so much of what makes up the day today, the present day, resists authority. Do you sense that? I mean, there's something in us working out. We're all sinners. We all bear the sin nature. Even if we have the Holy Spirit, and we do as Christians, there's still that sin nature there. Praise God, when we're raised up to be with him and our soul goes to meet with the Lord, it's made completely holy and we're done with sin. Hallelujah. But right now, right now, filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet we still have that nature. We can't undo it. We cannot undo it. And yet, you sense something of a resistance in our culture towards that. I won't. I won't submit. You won't make me. The church has wrestled with any number of struggles through the years. Initially, in the early church years, it was, is Jesus really God in the flesh? And they worked that out in the early church councils. And then later on, it was, how is it I'm actually forgiven? And they worked that out by way of the Protestant Reformation, by faith alone, by grace alone. You know what the present struggle in the church now is? Authority, obedience. Will I submit? Will I do that which God says I must? Mark this well, loved one. The fruit of a life always reveals the root of a life. The fruit of a life always reveals the root of a life. Obedience to the gospel is always the outworking of those who are truly Christians, who are not perfect, but desire, I want to obey. Spirit, involve me. Help me. Change me. The gospel summons an obedience. We're not perfect. But we should have a desire to move in that way. Isn't that what the catechism instructs us? That as we walk with the Lord, that he graciously, progressively sanctifies us so that we are more and more dead to sin and more and more alive to Christ. He summons us to obedience. And as we grow strong in faith, as we go deeper in faith, we are able to obey more and more and more. The gospel summons us to obedience. And the one who turns a blind eye to sin or minimizes sin, especially their own, is not one who has heard the gospel. And let's make this final observation and we're done. The gospel exalts Jesus, the Savior. The gospel does have a call. It does have an authority. It does have a heritage. It does summon an obedience. But the gospel is through and through this at its core. Christ Jesus is Savior. You wake up with that realization every morning. 
God didn't have to take me as his own, but he did. Christ Jesus is Savior. One day before this past Thanksgiving, my mom went home to be with the Lord Jesus. Totally unexpected. The result of two major surgeries that she just couldn't get over. And we said goodbye to her. She's with the presence of the Lord right now with my dad and those that she loves. So we're in the midst of cleaning that house out. You know how hard that is. You've done it, some of you. I can see it in your faces. It's hard. It's so hard. So I said the other day, well, I'll clean out the vanities, you know. My mom had something living in every little thing. The Q-tips lived here and the lotion lived here and it was so organized. I thought, oh boy, this is where I get it. And then I glanced up at the mirror and she had written out this saying and just pasted it to her mirror. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Those weren't her words. Those are John Newton's words. The great theologian and hymn writer. If the gospel is anything... It is this at its core. Jesus Christ is Savior. Your Savior, if you know him. My Savior. Oh, that's, that's tantamount to all that it is. Think about the Apostle Paul. Don't you think there were nights after he embraced Christ that he'd wake up in the middle of the night, stare at the ceiling, and remember all the hellishness he brought to the lives of Christians? <laughs> Those that he now were a part of. That must have been hard to bear. All the suffering he brought. All the votes he cast. Yeah, kill that one. That's right. She's a Christian. Can you imagine the potential for guilt overwhelmingly washing away? But the core of his gospel was, Jesus Christ is my Savior. My goodness, my goodness. Is it any surprise that later on he would write to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he would say these words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. (laughs) You ever feel that way? (laughs) God, how is it you can save me? I'm the greatest of sinners. He does. It is the gospel. The gospel for all of its calling, for all of its heritage, for all of its authority, for all of its requirement of obedience. The gospel finds its fulfillment in this fact. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Paul the apostle. What a man. Educated. Well-to-do, position, power. That's not what he's bragging on just here. Not at all. Not at all. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. You know, as Paul moved through life, that became richer and deeper and stronger and truer. Is it like that for you? As you walk now after five years with the Lord, or ten, do you love him more? Do you hunger for him more? Do you want him more? And is he, in a new and fresh way, More and more, so to speak, your Savior. If not, then I'm not sure you've got the gospel. But if so, that happens. Paul gets near the end of his life and writing to the churches, to the church at Philippi, which is that great epistle of joy. He says this, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The gospel exalts Jesus as Savior. Well, have you answered that call? You see the richness of that heritage? You bend the knee to that authority. Are you obeying in submission to his will? You say, well, I appreciate all you're saying, preacher, but I'm not even sure I understand what the gospel is. You've read these seven verses, and that's all fine, but what is the gospel exactly? What is this good news? Let me just finish by saying to you what it is. You and I are born as rebels. (laughs) We're conceived in sin, the Bible says. That's not a statement on sexual infidelity. That's the reality that we are, by nature, black from the beginning. Sinful, awful. And we come into this world shaking our fist at God. We're rebels. And if we are left to ourselves, left to our aims, left to our desires, left to us, we perish. No, we'll have all our possessions on this side, but we'll have our sin as well. There'll be no hope for us. And so the gospel is that good news that if we turn from our sin, if we turn from ourselves, and if we look to Christ in faith, he will save us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done and who he is. And as we place our faith in him to forgive us, to save us, he will. And he will grant to us new life. Repent and believe. That's Jesus' call to us. It's the gospel. And it finds its origin in God himself. Let's pray together. Sola Deo Gloria, to you alone, O God, be glory. We are your people. We are, as the psalmist has declared earlier, just flesh, just dust, broken and dependent upon your compassion, which you have granted to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the Savior of his people, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, victorious in all authority, proclaiming you are victor. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We submit. We submit to you, O God. And Lord, if there's any here, even now, in whom the Holy Spirit is working the work of regeneration right now, just as he did in that heart of Saul, making him a Paul. And we open to that, and we pray they would allow you your way. Grant that Christ has been honored. This we pray. In his name. Amen.